Thank you, Margie, and good afternoon, everybody. In the search for um, understanding of the Anzacs and the Great War, Charles Bean's writings have long been the starting point for researchers and historians. You can't begin to write about the war without reading the works of Bean, the official Australian correspondent and subsequently the official historian. His overarching influence over how Australians remember Gallipoli, Anzacs and the Great War is undeniable. His vision of the Anzac soldier has dominated historical memory for nearly 100 years. For Bean, the archetypal Anzac was strong, resilient, inventive, good-humoured, laconic and duty-bound. For him, this was the archetypal Australian bushman of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. His early book on the wool track and his um, early articles in the Sydney Morning Herald confirmed that even before he landed with the troops at Gallipoli in April 1915, he already had a strong idea of the Australian character and importantly, that he believed the Australian had in him the stuff of military greatness. To Bean, the Gallipoli landing saw the Bushman's character easily transformed into that of the Anzac soldier, who drew on the Bushman's colonial roots and strengthened the face of harsh and dangerous conditions, and he did it all with good humour. Bean's thinking evolved progressively from that of a journalist to that of an official war correspondent, official historian, and later to founder of the War Memorial. What has been missing in all of this until now is an understanding of Charles Bean the man, to understand the man is to better understand his official history. Writers have looked at Bean's history and seen an extraordinarily detailed account of the experience of Australians during the four years of war. It is unique with more than 8,000 Australians of the Australian Imperial Force named. It was like no other official history uh, of any war ever written in its breadth and depth. It has been less easy to access the mind and emotions of Bean. This, of course, is the way he wanted it. He was the storyteller, whose background as a journalist trained him to write in the third person and let the facts tell the story. His legal training honed his appreciation of facts. I can empathise with his ideas on this. The idea of a journalist as a personality is a relatively recent phenomenon a product of the television age rather than newspapers. I find it hard to see uh, Bean fitting easily to the screen. Bean was by nature an introvert, a quiet man at home with his uh, own thoughts. For him, his writing did his talking. Because his books are laden with factual material, the stories he tells have been the focus. What has been missing has been an understanding of the values that drove Bean and shaped his worldview. In this, I'd like to refer to Justice Jeff Lindsay of the New South Wales Supreme Court. Bean has fascinated uh, him ever since he read On the Wall Track as a schoolboy. In fact, he won a prize for history at Bankstown High and was awarded the book. Jeff Lindsay contends that in reading Bean and appreciating him, one should accept the likelihood that his view of events was assisted by natural sympathies 
in favour of people he observed. Equally, his views were also likely constrained by natural antipathies towards other people. Thus, his, his selection of facts and individuals must have been influenced by intuitive assessments. Bean saw life and selected facts from what he saw through a prism determined by a variant of Victorian-era liberal Anglicanism. This was the muscular Christianity championed by Thomas Arnold, the renowned headmaster of rugby school in the mid-19th century. Arnold's protege, John Percival, had been headmaster at uh, Clifton College when Charles's father, Edwin Bean, was a pupil there. The focus was on religious principles, gentlemanly behaviour, academic attainment and character training, virtues such as loyalty, chivalry, sportsmanship and leadership. Percival stressed a sense of social mission, creating a new world for the masses. Edwin Bean naturally ensured that Charles and his two brothers were similarly influenced in the family environment. Bean's own values for the rest of his life were influenced by the years he spent at Clifton. Percival's influence extended further. After meeting the old headmaster at Oxford, Bean was critical of Britain over Boer War concentration camps in 1901, just as Percival was. In a letter to the Paul Moore Gazette, Bean railed against the alleged high death rates uh, and the Gazette's manipulation of the figures involved. Bean argued that publishing the truth would not harm any good cause, though suppressing it certainly would. This would be a familiar theme throughout his life. Truth was a beacon that he never wavered from. When other journalists around him were happy to colour their reporting in search of good copy, he was not. Equally, he did not accept the word of GHQ, as other, other correspondents did. Rather, to the amazement of the British correspondents, he set himself the task of visiting, on the day of the battle or soon afterwards, every important trench or position occupied by Australian troops in Gallipoli and France. He didn't trust second-hand information. If Percival had stressed a sense of social mission in his teachings, Bean likewise was such a social missionary. And for Bean, to write the official history was to fulfil the commitment to public duty. At the end of the Great War, Bean set out his ideas, his ideals and hopes for Australia in the, uh, the wake of the huge loss of life. He did this in his book, In Your Hands, Australians. The book was more a treatise, a personal manifesto of his aspirations for Australia, uh, whose people he hoped would pay due homage to the men of the AIF. And he wrote it in the final months of the war, on leave at Cannes, on the French Riviera, not out with the boys having a beer in the bars, but holed up in his hotel room, belting it out on his correspondent's typewriter. Bean then reaffirmed these ideals 25 years later in his World War II book, War Aims of a Plain Australian. Both books demonstrate a deep commitment to the importance of education, conservation of the environment, town planning and social planning more generally. Here we see Charles Bean utopian. His was not a preoccupation with the Australian bush only for the sake of the Australian bush, but more especially for the sake of a healthy lifestyle with a healthy environment for all Australians. 
the champion of bush life was in large measure an urban social reformer. By the time War Aims was published in 1943, however, Bean was disillusioned that his ambitions for a new Australia had not been realised. It was in this frame of mind that he attempted a book he planned to call The Straight Line, a book in which John Percival featured. This was a project in which Bean tried, had tried to make sense of it all. Bean actually portrayed himself as a character named John Percival. In creating the alter ego, ego John Percival, even armed at Third Ypres with, in 1917 with Bean's trademark telescope, he, he was identifying with the moral philosophy that drove Percival. As he wrote, again and again on Gallipoli or in billets in France, John, that is Percival, had thrashed out with his messmates the kind of Australia they might make if only Australians devoted their brains and vigour to planning it as they planned operations in war. The new towns planned and old ones replanned by applying or inventing where necessary the principles of town planning to Australian conditions of climate and social equality. John wrote a small book in which he crystallised their hopes for that dreamland which it would soon be in their hands to make or mar. We should uh, have a generation or two free of the improvement, of, free for the improvement of Australia. He thought the League of Nations should ensure us peace for present lifetime, and if in that time we can't build something like the Australia that we all want, we don't deserve to possess her. You will notice that there was even a reference to his earlier book, In Your Hands, Australians. But in trying to write this book, the handwritten manuscript of which I found at the uh, War Memorial in the, the Bean archives, Bean had lost his way. It would never be finished. Just as the Arnold tradition shaped Bean, so too did social Darwinism, a hot topic in Britain during his education there after leaving Bathurst in 1889. In Britain, he had come to a studied view of the typical Englishman of the cities of the Industrial Revolution. Small, concave-chested, pale, this was the opposite of the Australian he saw exemplified at Gallipoli and the Western Front. But he feared that this could be Australia's fate too. Bean envisaged generations of city dwellers becoming smaller in body and weaker in courage and resolve than their forebears. He believed Australia had the chance to avoid this and must not fail to do so. The Australian from the country was as he put it, the Britain reborn, as it were, a Britain with the stamina and freshness of the 16th century living amongst the material advantages of the 20th century. Bean believed there was a special chance for the Anglo-Saxon race in Australia that could result in the preservation of the strength of body, mind and character in spite of city life. The answer was for city councils to ensure sufficient space for Australians to, to play whatever games they wanted particularly cricket, I would have thought, in Bean's case. By doing so, they would be buying the salvation of their race and buying it dirt cheap. He supported the White Australia policy because he believed egalitarian Australians did not want to be masters of other races. And anyway, Westerners and Easterners could not uh, live together without demoralising each other. And, his, and Australia, he noted, was the last land open to the white man, and by white man, Bean meant Anglo-Saxon. Bean's views on race at this time 
reflected a worldview that, ind that endorsed the supremacy of the British Empire. He would come to repudiate this later in life. In these um, early years of the 20th century, Bean's newspaper articles show that uh, he saw Australia's relationship Britain, uh, with Britain through a prism of imperial idealisation, especially as he was convinced war with Germany was inevitable and that Australia, isolated in the South Seas, would need British help to defend its shores. In his articles for the Sydney Morning Herald, Bean offered something Australians were unaccustomed to, a public intellectual who could give his readers a sense of where they came from and what they represented. And he laid before them ideals, however grandiose, for the nation's future. Bean was not only mixing in influential circles, he was also fulfill fulfilling a role not uncommon among journalists uh, in the so-called progressive era. As the American historian Richard Hofstadter later wrote, it is hardly an exaggeration to say that the progressive mind was characteristically a journalistic mind and that its characteristic contribution was that of the socially responsible reporter-reformer. He was playing an educative role as a journalist in taking town planning to a wider audience. For Bean, though, the Great War intervened, putting on hold his campaigning for town planning and better city living conditions. As I've alluded to, the Great War had a profound impact on Bean. War tends to do that, of course. What has not been previously understood is the effect of four years at the front on Bean personally. He was shot in the thigh at Gallipoli, refused to be evacuated and carried the bullet for the rest of his life. He had a job to do. He saw slaughter on an unimaginable scale both there and on the Western Front. The sight and sounds of wounded men as they writhed in pain could have been nothing other than harrowing. And it was an experience for which nothing could have prepared him. It is inconceivable that after the horrors of four years of war that he would not have escaped without a degree of post-traumatic stress. No person routinely exposed to as much death, destruction and risk of injury as he was could escape exposure to psychological damage. One only has to read his diaries and notebooks to understand this. No one could help not uh, be moved by his account of Pozieres where horror became routine. Let me quote this account where he wrote about uh, coming across some signallers as they uh, fixed up broken wire along a trench. And there was a photo of some signallers in a trench um, uh, earlier and I, was, I couldn't help but think of, of this image that, that being portrayed of, of, um, of uh, what he saw. And this is what he wrote. And there lying in the bottom of the trench, just as they had fallen the night before, were three men of the 10th Battalion. One poor chap had his tunic and shirt torn bare by some piece of shell and you look down past the bare white skin of the chest almost to his backbone. I can't bear to think of these things. Another had his skull broken in just like an eggshell. A third lay peacefully there like a wax figure on which the dust had long settled, waxen, drawn, thin white lips slightly open and eyes shut. Almost as if he was lying against the wall of the trench with both arms thrown out listlessly. Others that we came across you could hardly tell for dead. They might have been living men sleeping on the floor of the trench. And indeed the living were sleeping just near them. One is apt to think 
that is callous of the battalion to leave these men lying about. But the living are worn out by the morning, and the dead are dead. Ghastly as accounts like this are, it is likely that writing his precious diaries every day, there are more than 200 diaries and notebooks, unwittingly helped Bean to debrief the horrors and loss of life that he witnessed. And writing the official history over the following 23 years helped him process the terrible events he bore witness to. This may well have been what kept him sane. Bean understood what the troops went through because he went through it himself. As his great friend General Brudenell White at war's end acknowledged, that man faced death more times than any other man in the AIF and had no glory to look for either. What he did, and he did wonders, was done from a pure sense of duty. Frommel is an important story in all of this. Bean was suppressed by military censorship of the day in playing down the huge life of loss, a huge loss of life there. However, in the official history, he devoted 119 pages to his account and did not spare Haking, the, general, um, the British general in charge of uh, the catastrophe, and the British um, uh, military overall. Tellingly, the British official history covers Frommel in 17 pages. Today, Frommel is finally entering public consciousness in a way that Bean would have approved. Bean would also uh, approve of the greater interest now being shown in the Australian performance on the Western Front. After all, while he wrote two volumes on Gallipoli, he also wrote four on the Western Front. This uh, shows a century on a more balanced understanding of the war, and not just of uh, Gallipoli, but the years after in France. Could it be that because of the flamboyant, flamboyant accounts of um, Ashmead Bartlett that for many decades uh, Gallipoli has been the face of the Great War for Australians, but that with time and scholarship a more mature view is now emerging? I believe this is happening across the board, but there is a way to go. The ground, though, is fertile. In this, it was gratifying for me to see the strong positive reception, reception to my book um, on the Anzac nurses, the other Anzacs, re-released last year uh, as Anzac Girls to coincide with the ABC TV series. This would not have happened a few decades ago. While Bean's official history is strongly masculine, he was aware of the role of the nurses and their contribution. Indeed, he wrote a cable uh, about them during the Turkish attack on the canal in February 1916. So Bean would have approved of this change in national understanding that we're seeing today. Interestingly, Bean once confided to World War II official historian Gavin Long that he'd never met an academic historian who had read uh, one of his volumes. His goal was to reach a wider non-military audience. In his review of my book, Geoffrey Blaney observed that when he first tried to become an historian, Bean's national ranking outside military circles was not so high. In the nation's history schools, the two world wars were not yet in favour. And he wondered whether Bean, in his lifetime, 
was prescribed reading for any history courses in Australia. At least we know that uh, Justice Jeff Lindsay was awarded one of his books as a prize at the age of 16. So there was certainly some awareness in schools then. A century on, though, a new awareness of Bean is needed. Those who pass over his contribution to Australian history without pausing to examine the complexity masked by a veneer of simple virtues or casual, casual references to uh, war or mateship miss much of what there is to learn from him. He was a man who twice rejected a knighthood yet accepted two honorary doctorates, indeed calling himself Dr Bean. This is telling. He did not believe he deserved a knighthood ahead of any soldier, but he had earned the right to a doctorate by his work. The archives uh, that Bean bequeathed to the nation deserve close study, not just to uh, understand the man himself and to know his account of the Great War, but also to better understand an experience that, for better or worse, shaped Australia as a nation. Thank you.